Welcome to NeuroNoodles Neurofeedback and Neuropsychology Podcast featuring our neuropsychologists, Dr. Laura Jansen, Dr. Skip Wren, and neurofeedback legend Jake Uncleman. Our goal is to provide information and promote options for better mental health. This is an all-star cast that are more than happy to share their knowledge with you. My name is Pete, and today we're going to catch up on some more listener questions. Uh, it'll be another great YouTube show. Jay's got his share screen in uh, already, his fingers on the button. But before we get there, we'd like to thank our Patreon supporters, Outrageous Baking, Tour Talk, Joshua M., owner of Alternative uh, Behavioral Therapy, EEG and Me, Mara. Welcome aboard, Mara, new, new Patreon supporter. We're so glad to have you. Uh, we also have our Sadia M and Jonathan Rowan, January Terrell. Outrageous Baking is a dedicated gluten-free bakery that's been around for 15 years. And Tortoc wants more people to discover TTS, text-to-speech, because listening to text can increase efficiency and reduce stress. Please give us five stars on Apple Podcasts. It really helps get the word out. If they can't hear us, we can't help them. Hey, how about uh, Steve Stern? Any news on him, guys? I heard he might be riding off into the sunset. I think he's going to retire. What? What? what, uh, what what's the news, Skip? We received notification from Steve, longtime friend, uh, as longtime a uh, provider of great equipment from uh, Stens, that he is going to retire, and the company's going to keep going. But Steve's going to enjoy uh, Northern California without going to work every day. I think. Oh. So that means he's moving to Colorado or Wyoming? <laughs> Maybe. I don't know. Some people like paying a lot of taxes. I don't know. I don't know. Mind Media and Irwin. We got to get Irwin on. See what the what's what's the latest going on over there. So Jay, what do you, what do you got for us today? We were uh we were finishing up Tor's question last week. He was talking about what was uh, it? He, initially he was discussing dyslexia. Uh, dyslexia is uh seen as a, a presentation in QEG, uh, it's not uh, usually identifiable in the raw EEG uh, because this is a subtlety, not a epileptiform discharge or a gross abnormality. It's a subtlety. So uh, you, you don't go to the hospital to get an EEG for dyslexia. Uh, you won't, they won't basically get paid for that. <laughs> That's not an indication for it. But the QEG can show things that are much more subtle. Uh, Jack Johnstone, many years ago, who was my old business partner, uh, published about dyslexia's QEG correlates, and it showed a central parietal slow feature that generally is correlated with white matter change in the area, uh, which essentially is sensory processing uh, issue. More recently, uh, there's been identification of left uh, posterior temporal parietal junction, Wernicke area uh, involvement uh, uh, with people that have dyslexia. In Tortok's note, there was kind of a throwaway sentence about uh, families having it being common in families, and that there were, that was actually something that was real. And you know, he doesn't have to convince me. Uh, we, we can actually uh, show. Uh, there, there is a genetic uh, biomarker uh, that's associated with dyslexia dyscalculia, and that's that left temporal feature, not the parietal sensory integration issue that's generally diagnosed as dyslexia. This genetic biomarker is for the 
temporal finding. Uh, is there a reason for that familial linkage? Well, there you go. Uh, it's not such a dominant gene that a dyslexic's children have to be dyslexic, but the family line will tend to have dyslexia loaded in it. Uh, anyway, um, there, there was some reality to that. Um, he, he went on in another topic, basically, to discuss um, uh, epilepsy. And in fact, uh, he said he wasn't going to be able to be uh, attending. He'd have to catch the video of today's uh, podcast because uh, he was going to be in a consult with an epileptologist uh, because of the remarkable recovery of an intractable epileptic uh, that the epileptologist didn't expect to have any recovery. And uh, they're, they're meeting to discuss that. And he wanted to know uh, whether I had uh, something, you know, basically, what, what about Jay about that? And um, in front of you now, uh, basically, you should see uh, a, an abstract. This is a document in submission right now. And uh, this is uh, a, a young girl who at the time uh, was uh, having uh, 250 uncontrolled seizures a day. Uh, and uh, those uh, basically, uh, some of them uh, were life-threatening with uh, cessation of respiration. And uh, basically um, uh, going from uh, unable to even do simple self-care uh, to becoming a Division I uh, tennis star in the United States. And uh, th this uh, progression from uh, intractable epilepsy to being seizure-free and medication-free uh, took a period of time. And it wasn't quick and easy, uh, but this is an extreme case. Uh, and uh, the, this took over 500 neurofeedback sessions. Uh, the authors in this uh, are Rusty Turner, uh, Sue Wilson, uh, who's a peak performance uh, 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 psychologist for elite sports, uh, myself, uh, Alexandra, uh, who's uh, uh, the, the mother of Isabella. Uh, this is done with as a case report with the uh, full permission um, as, uh, as an adult by the patient and the mother. Uh, they, they, and they basically are going to uh, uh, talk about her case and present it and having a, a document with her actually identified in it is... Uh, uh, helpful for that uh, uh, advocacy that they intend to do. But um, uh, the, this is, as I say, in submission. This is, I think, number six of the uh, series of intractable epileptics that I've worked with, uh, all of which have become seizure-free medication. You know, <laughs> all, all the people that wonder if neurofeedback works, um, uh, you generally don't go seizure-free, medication-free if you're an intractable, severe epileptic. Uh, you, it, it's a long-standing condition. Uh, 
That's a student uh, athlete too, right, Jay? Uh, yeah, yeah, absolutely. And that's <laughs> the, talk about stress on top of your uh, uh, university studies. You've got uh, extreme amount of time. Yeah, I, I was a student athlete swimmer, and you know, four hours of extra workout and stuff a day really takes a chunk out of your university study time. So you have to really be dedicated to do that stuff. But, uh, you know, her, her tennis uh, was uh, uh, her motivation as well. So uh, this is one of six and uh, they're all, as I say, medication free, seizure free. Uh, Maggie is a case in Michigan uh, and she's actually had some video uh, footage on her uh, and uh, her family. Uh, she went from uh, being intractable epilepsy uh, with uh, ESES, uh, electrographic status epilepticus of sleep, uh, where you fall asleep and you have seizures, it wakes you back up. Uh, she's seizure-free medication-free as well. But um, uh, Tortox concern over uh, um, uh, it, it, what's going on with the intractable epilepsy. There's actually publications about intractable epilepsy and neurofeedback. Um, and uh, there's a meta-analysis by Gabriel Tan uh, that's specifically about uh, uh, this as well. I, I would suggest that uh, uh, working with epilepsy is absolutely a, a wonderful idea, but it's not, uh, um, you really in life have to kind of um, expect the uh, unexpected, uh, and uh, let, let's uh, Let's look at uh, some current data. So uh, uh, this this is a current uh, publication, Springer uh, and uh, European Child and Adolescent Psychiatry Journal. And this is looking at epileptiform activity in kids and uh, what's its prevalence in various categories and uh, what's the implication for uh, treatment approach. And, you know, there's uh, some of the usual suspects, Ron Swasina, uh, Martine Arns, uh, Dr. Tarno's a psychiatrist in, in uh, Houston, uh, Robert Turner Rusty. Uh, uh, some of these were grad students uh, working with uh, uh, Ron uh, earlier. I, I don't know uh, whether they've graduated or what they're up to at this point. And then Nash is actually a, a fairly well-known internationally as an electroencephalographer. Cut to the chase. This is a meta-analysis. Uh, what they're showing is that in ADD, ADHD, you can see epileptiform content on the average about 25% of the time or more. And that that's, you know, ADD, ADHD. This isn't somebody who's having seizures. This is somebody who's got attentional regulatory problems. And is present in about a quarter of them. So if you don't look, you may prescribe a medication that exacerbates it. Uh, If you're treating a discharge with an anticonvulsant and the person needs a stimulant for ADD, that's okay. But if you're not treating the seizure discharge, that same stimulant may trigger an increased probability of seizures. So um, actually looking before you uh, work with this class of patients is important. And if you prescribe a medication and they have an unexpected response, for goodness sakes, at least look then. 
Now, uh, in anxiety disorders, you know, it's double the three to five percent of the normal population that have epileptiform findings, uh, uh, but it's not a gigantic uh, number. It's just double the background. Uh, but the autism spectrum, my goodness, they're running about 60% of the autism spectrum have epileptiform content in the EEG. And, you know, <laughs> 60% awfully good odds. You know, <laughs> um, uh, you, you go to Vegas with 60%, you come back rich, you know. So um, the, the, this is... Uh, this, if you're working with autism and you're not looking at the EEG to identify epileptiform discharges, you're really uh, below the what should be the standard of practice. Uh, uh, if you're not looking to find this, you won't know how to treat it. Um, if you actually see the discharges, there's some physicians that can end up prescribing appropriate medication, and there are neurofeedback protocols that can specifically address epileptiform discharges. So <clears throat> mood disorders down to the, you know, depression, uh, uh, down to the background population, 3% or so, um, and psychotics, about a third of the psychotics end up having epileptiform discharges. And this influences how you treat them. Well, it should. I mean, if you don't look and don't know, it doesn't influence the damn thing how you treat them. But if they have epileptiform discharges, antipsychotic medications decrease the seizure discharge threshold and you, have, you get worse. Um, so you give them more antipsychotic medication. Uh, uh, so it, that, that's, it's obviously a mistake. And uh, also lithium uh, uh, can also make it worse. Uh, but an anticonvulsant used as a stabilizing agent in psychiatry uh, is the appropriate response when you see epileptiform content in a psychiatric patient. Importance of looking at the EEG in uh, psychiatry and in neurofeedback work is really critical. You know, um, as I say, expect the unexpected. Uh, you, you're you're going to see uh, epileptiform discharges in the EEG if you know what you're looking at. Uh, in your clinical cases. Anyway, uh, uh, I think that's it for that topic. I have a question and it's, man, it's a wide net question for sure. I'm just trying to wrap my head around behaviors that are associated with these labels or disorders that you mentioned, right? Which are observable symptoms. And then also how behaviors are generated neurologically and and here's what i'm trying to wrap my head around and i don't know if it's one simple answer i doubt it can you say something to how this elept, uh, uh, epileptiform discharge contributes to the behaviors that we know as adhd that we know as you know autism spectrum disorder as we you know, anxiety disorder right it, it goes in so many different directions um What's the common thread? Like, like if you have epileptiform discharge, can that account for distractibility? Like, hey, you know, you're having a, a shorting out upstairs and so you're not paying attention. Obviously, I'm simplifying. Yeah. But in, in fact, okay. yeah, absolutely. The, the turf that the discharge occupies ends okay. up changing its symptom presentation. All right. And you know, if it's affecting the frontal lobe, 
your ability to track things and attend to things is going to be disrupted. And uh, as an example, a well-known uh, discharge that's, that's seen <clears throat> in absence epilepsy, a three per second spike in wave, that can be 500 to 1,500 microvolts. And a, a, a perception is five to 10 microvolts worth of content. And if you get hit with a 300 to 500 to 1,500 wave, that tsunami, the little ship is lost. You know, your, your attention is on Gilligan's Island at that point. There's no way to track anything. So uh, the, the frontal lobe can be disturbed. Now, more subtle, little tiny discharges that are epileptiform can also hijack it without being a three per second spike in wave. Uh, many years ago now, I think uh, to 2009, perhaps, Yuri Kropotov and I lectured together in Australia. And uh, he did the ERP uh, section of the uh, presentation, and uh, they had done a recording. Uh, one of the neurologists in the audience had volunteered to do the CPT task. It's the most boring task in the world. You're looking at stuff and pressing a button for 20 minutes, you know, and uh, go, no go task. So I stepped out of the room, caught up on, you know, uh, you know texting uh, back to my partner and, and catching up on email and uh, stepped back in as they were starting to go through the EG to prep it for analysis. And you, you want to cut out artifacts. Well, as they're scanning through, uh, uh, I say, oh, back it up, back it up. Look, uh, an epileptiform discharge left frontally. And the neurologist says, you know, I, you know, I, I know it's there. Uh, it's meaningless. I'm surprised anybody even saw it. And, uh, you know, that's, that's an interesting theory that this is a meaningless discharge. And he's a neurologist. This is exactly what they believe. Well, it, it, a CPT task was just run. And he had two omission errors, which was not outside normal. Uh, he had no commission errors, very good reaction time, very low variability. But the two omissions happened when two discharges happened. The two times his brain had a discharge, he skipped the response. So his attentional focus on the task, which was perfect otherwise, was hijacked by the discharge. Now, tell me that was a meaningless discharge again. Right. You know, and, and he had to admit, my God, you know, uh, uh, he, he was shocked. Uh, you know, you don't know that you're missing it. You miss it. You know, um, it, it's a piece missing. It's not, you don't, there's no flag, hey, you're missing a piece. Um, it, it, it's just uh, a hijack. Now, it can happen elsewhere. Uh, if you have a temporal lobe discharge, you can have pseudobulbar affect, uh, out of control laughter. Uh, 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 gelastic seizures are uh, a fit of laughter. Now, it's not funny to the person who's doing the laughing. I mean, they're not laughing because like they tickled their funny bone. This is out of control. This is hysterical laughter. And it's actually quite disturbing to the person who's having it. Um, and there's other emotions. Just, you know, many uh, emotions can end up. And rage from a temporal lobe epileptic discharge is also extremely common. Uh, out of control rage. Uh, um, uh, uh, it, the individual quite often doesn't even have an adequate memory of what happened when it's done. Uh, 
uh, and occasionally will end up having hurt themselves uh, uh, in the process. So, um, you know, depending upon where it is. Now, if it hits the motor strip and you have a seizure, you're the one that gets to go see the neurologist and gets right. an attic convulsion. But if it's in the frontal lobe, unless you're caught with a three per second spike in way of staring spell, you're likely not to get seen. You know, you're going to be diagnosed with an ADD, you know, attentional problem. And you have an attentional problem, but it's a different etiology than simple ADD. Uh, different spot, different symptom, right posterior temporal parietal junction, uh, Asperger's autism type presentations, left side, uh, you have lexical processing over there. You can have uh, mute autism. If you can't comprehend, you can't speak, you know, the, and anyway, the, you, you end up with uh, the discharge appropriate uh, to the symptoms that are present. Occipital discharges are usually judged in neurology. At, they're called benign juvenile, you know, occipital benign juvenile uh, epilepsy. And they typically have not treated it historically uh, because there's no seizure. What's, what's to treat if you're not having a seizure? Well, the hallucination, the, the sensory processing problem. And more recently, now that they have neuroimaging, uh, they're finding uh, cortical dysplasias, little uh, structural anomalies. Uh, they're starting to actually do treatment, and it helps treat the uh, sensory problems and hallucinations. Um, uh, usually, tegretol or trileptol or lamictal will be used, uh, and and the occipital spikes again aren't going to cause seizures, so they're considered benign. Yeah, you said anyway, uh, if you don't know what you're looking for, I don't know if you have any couple a couple EEGs or picks at the ready just to show the the rookie techs what it looks like. Oh well, that's that's entirely possible. Uh, let, let me uh, pop up a. Go ahead. We've, we've got monozygotic twins here. This twin has seizures, and. Uh, we, we can look at this uh, EEG pretty easily. Um, these are spike and wave discharges coming out of the parietal area <clears throat> and the central area uh, with phase reversals here on the left central uh, cortical area. So uh, this uh, person was having seizures um, and uh, they're treating this person with an anticonvulsant. But as you can see, these discharges in the temporal area, parietal area, central area are happening continually all the way through the EEG. So this twin has epilepsy. But, you know, the other twin, uh, again, a monozygotic twin no seizures, diagnosed with dyslexia and a learning disability. Don't you know that their monozygotic twins have the same phenotype? And as you start to go through the EEG, I think you'll recognize the twins. Totally different diagnosis because this twin wasn't having seizures but they're having sensory processing problems that are really quite profound. So the behavioral DSM diagnosis, notice the little attitude about the DSM diagnosis, 
um, of dyslexia or sensory processing problem didn't look at the phenotype. When you come up with a guess, which is all the DSM is, it's a guess, you should do some testing to find out what the pathophysiology is because there's many clusters within the DSM, you know, DSM category <clears throat> because the DSM is not specific. E- even for OCD, where there's only one kind of OCD in the DSM, the, there's three EEG endophenotypes associated with it. This twin with obvious <clears throat> epileptiform discharges, uh, we've got uh, parietal uh, spikes here, thus the uh, uh, learning disability. Uh, PC is a sensory integration cortex. And if it's getting hit by a tsunami uh, of a, a giant wave, uh, you're not going to be able to perceptually track anything. So her uh, you know, sensory processing problem, which was the symptom, was accurate. But the pathophysiology is totally different than somebody that has a, a normal uh, dyslexia or learning disability. You, you want some EEG, uh, you got some EEG. So, um, and uh, the spike in wave is what you see. Um, and uh, this is the mathematics of spike detection. And uh, uh, the, uh, this is the spike. The duration of the spike has to be between 20 and 70 milliseconds for this algorithm to spot it. Those of you who really know, uh, 20 to 60 is the formal definition. However, if they don't set this out to 70, the algorithm misses spikes that the doctor would call. And the doctor's call is the gold standard, not the mathematical definition of 20 to 60. So they had to widen this out to match up with the doctor's eyes. When I started an EEG, the definition without digital EEG, just on paper, that uh, was 20 to 80. But, you know, on paper, there's ink and width and absorption and you know, the precision is not quite there for measurements. And um, uh, we, we would measure a little broader um, in, in the old days for what was considered a spike. And the slow wave has to be within 150 milliseconds of the spike onset in order to, to be associated with it. Otherwise, they're just unrelated. Uh, so uh, uh, this is a classic spike algorithm, and this could be passed over the EEG to identify the spikes in a more automated way. Uh, but the doctor's eyes, again, are the gold standard. And then, and then Jay, we had a, a Nina question on PTSD. I don't know if uh, Skip or Dr. Laura wants to t- touch on uh, her question. If you read through the question, yeah. she, she was, cons- uh, she's in uh, Melbourne, Australia. Uh, so uh, apparently people in other time zones catch this other than just uh, early morning uh, right. here in California. California. You know? um, uh, but uh, in Melbourne, she's uh, looking to treat her a fairly complex uh, PTSD. Uh, and uh, uh, she's been offered a rental of a neurooptimal uh, device. Uh, and she was wondering, uh, because she really couldn't find anything further about it when she was trying to research uh, it 
on PTSD. She had heard about neurofeedback because of Bessel van der Kolk's uh, The uh, Body Keeps the Score uh, bestseller for, God, I think 40 weeks or some damn thing on the, on the New York Times bestseller list. Um, uh, so, it, you know, a, a very popular book. And during COVID, imagine people just snapped that up, you know, left and right. So um, uh, she had heard about uh, neurofeedback and she was basically wondering about uh, that device. Now, uh, uh, I I welcome uh, comments from uh, Skip and Laura, but I've got comments as well. And and there's a lot of uh, advancing technologies for dry sensor uh, Sense AI just uh, 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 put out their um, uh, Indiegogo uh, fund thing. Uh, they've they've got somewhere close to a million dollars worth of uh, orders already, and uh, uh, and it's a well designed device. I, I've seen it and have advised them on the quality of their amplifier, and advised them some on the kind of analysis that would end up being appropriate for that uh, kind of a device. But uh, uh, the, the, there are other uh, uh, deals, the crown, which kind of grabs the sides of your head. Um, it doesn't have the midline, but it has uh, temporal and uh, you know, lateral and posterior uh, sites that are covered. Um, uh, uh, different devices end up having different locations. Um, uh, you can have uh, uh, Cognionics All-19 uh, dry sensor technologies as well. But uh, um, the, the question here was basically specifically about the NeuroOptimal, which is, um, which is a classic device that's been around for quite a long time. Uh, 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 Val Brown, the owner and, and developer of it, is an old friend of mine. I've known him for a long, long time, have to divulge that. Um, and uh, uh, he's actually contributed some interesting ideas, uh, like not just having a lower threshold that something has to be above, but also having an upper threshold that it shouldn't be above. Uh, so uh, uh, range uh, for your filtering. Uh, so and that was a unique uh, contribution to the field that nobody had done prior to him. So th- there, there's some very interesting approaches. Uh, he does uh, have a, a, a background uh, that orients him towards uh, chaos theory um, and and that as an explanation for uh, how his device works um, but uh, uh, the neurooptimal device uh, was not uh, uh, when they filed for their FDA clearance they filed for it as a general health and wellness device as opposed to a neurofeedback device now uh, it's a different category and uh, they, they argued that uh, you don't have to do anything. Just, you can turn it on like background music and uh, that, that you don't have to pay attention. There's nothing that the person has to do. And as such, it's not really uh, neurofeedback. This is chaos theory. Uh, uh, feedback into a system will allow the system to self-regulate and change state. And, and you know, systems theory predicts that feedback will do that. Now, they do li- limit their suggested locations to C3, C4, and they have uh, a, a built-in uh, a software approach to how that all runs. Uh, so it's one size fits all in that respect. Uh, 
uh, and it's fairly limited in its location, and they're limited to not making any kind of a claim. It's a general health and wellness device, like taking a daily vitamin. Uh, but this is not something that's used to treat anything. It's used for general health and wellness. Now, there are people that say, well, during my general health and wellness uh, uh, treatment, uh, my lumbago got better or whatever the, the symptom might have been. Yeah, it's just a, 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 a joke symptom. Uh, I, I don't even know what the hell lumbago would be. So <laughs> I heard on old cowboy movies, you know. Um, but, uh, uh, you know, it's, it's something got better. Well, you know, that, uh, that's an anecdote and nobody can use an anecdote to really support anything. Uh, the, the device has specifically not done research on it. Uh, they're, they're, um, uh, Val uh, uh, adamantly will not do uh, research because <clears throat> research would require you to like categorize a, like a DSM category. And this is a general health and wellness thing. You can't do that and still have your general health and wellness description. So it'll be outside. You know, FDA regulates manufacturers and their claims. Uh, uh, you, you can be a non-manufacturer that makes claims about, about a device, uh, but the manufacturer has to be uh, careful what they do or they get crosswise with the FDA. As a general health and wellness device, it has been tested a couple of times. Um, the, uh, there was a, a woman uh, that uh, I, I can't recall her name off the top of my head uh, at, at the ISNR meeting. Uh, they had tested a bunch of different devices uh, for uh, people that had attentional and learning issues. And uh, it came out basically in the middle of the pack. It wasn't uh, that the outcomes weren't uh, stellar, but it, it, it wasn't like there wasn't some benefit. So, you know, it, again, it's a general health and wellness device. You can't make a claim uh, when it has been tested. It, it didn't uh, look like a, a stellar device. But if you have a specific DSM category or a, a biomarker or endophenotype divergent pattern, yeah, you, you should think seriously about uh, actually working with somebody that has a credential in that area. Uh, and uh, probably uh, look at the full EEG more uh, for an evaluation and uh, kind of a protocol development. And it may not just be C3, C4. I mean, uh, uh, historically, C3, C4 was, uh, th those were common spots. The authors originally did C3 beta, C4 SMR. Uh, and uh, that uh, that, that was uh, uh, quite common. The uh, device of NeuroOptimal is actually a very good amplifier. Uh, in fact, the manufacturer of the NeuroOptimal amplifier is Larry Woodard, uh, Phoenix uh, 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 Electronics, or I can't remember what they call their company. They OEM their amp out to uh, not just uh, Val Brown, but also many other uh, groups within the neurofeedback world and Jim Hart for his amps and filters. So, uh, um, yeah, cl classic design. Larry Woodard was my lab partner in 1972. And uh, uh, we had a company together called Spectral Data Systems that made uh, EMG and temperature devices that were FDA registered uh, back in the 70s. So 
um, you know, he goes a long way back and does a very good job designing amplifiers. So it, it, it's a solid device. Uh, it has its limitations on topography to C3, C4. And I think there are a lot of other interesting brain areas. Um, it's a general wellness device. And if you've got a specific claim like complex PTSD, you may consider actually finding a, a person to do a full uh, workup. Uh, PTSD commonly ends up with the right posterior temporal parietal finding. We've discussed that a specific location, I think, a number of times earlier. On, on that note, Jay, the, the latter part of what you're saying, uh, we've had a guest on before, uh, Dr. Andrew Hill, Peak Institute out of LA. I think they might be St. Louis too. Um, and, and they do remote neurofeedback, meaning they'll send you the equipment, yep. et cetera, and walk you through how to do a cue and kind of get you up and running on how to do the training sessions. Just because the listener asked, hey, anything else maybe to consider? So there's something maybe to consider. And I happen to know that uh, Andrew does work with people down under, as they say. I, I knew uh, Dr. Hill when he was uh, looking around for his doctoral program and recommended to UCLA. So, yeah. Back when he was just Andy. Yeah. I, and I, I recognized his email address uh, and, I, and it, you know, he was a student uh, looking for a university and I recognized him online as a kind of a serious person. And uh, uh, there, there weren't, he was looking for an accredited university with a PhD program uh, in neurofeedback way back then. And, you know, you say you're going to do a neurofeedback PhD. It's a good way to ruin your career back then. So, um, and uh, to a certain extent, there's still locations that that's likely the case, but uh, um, uh, Aaron Zidell uh, had a brain lateralization lab um, and I think Aaron uh, passed just recently, um, but uh, uh, the uh, and uh, Andy was doing C three C four evaluation of subjective experience with SMR and beta frequencies. So, yeah, er- early work and uh, and important early work. And uh, but he's you know he's a, he was a serious student, got his PhD at a serious university. Yeah, I was, I was uh, thinking of, uh, I think we've all probably seen Be- uh, Bessel van der Kolk talk before. Um, he has a signature uh, EEG pattern for folks with PTSD, and uh, it includes the front left, and uh, so what is that, F3, and then uh, right central, so um, C4 probably. And uh, his, his uh, discussion about that was that we have the fight or flight response, which is going to be amygdala right side, um, but but we also have a, f- a freezing in a freezing in you know what we want to say. So when we're spooked, we we get frozen and we can't say anything and, and we're kind of holding whatever. We just kind of can't can't do anything or say anything, and that's the front left. Um, so an interesting pattern that he came up with that he saw pretty frequently. And then the other thing, I think this is something Jay brought up when we were communicating about this question beforehand, that uh, PTSD is a serious business, you know, and you're going to have differing, you know, patterns and, you know, to, to kind of treat yourself at home, um, you know, there's a lot of risk to that, you know, if you're not, not trained in, in psychology and, 
and um, you know the the different treatments and different presentations. You what, what did you what was what was your phrase, Jay? That you have a fool for a cl- oh, being your own attorney. I think you said that. Uh, yeah, yeah. Well. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, 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 th- that's a classic. You know. Um, if you've got a complex circumstance, it's best to find somebody who's expert in that area. And self-treatment when there's a complex circumstance is your perfect right. But, you know, as I say, if you're your own lawyer, you've got a fool for a client. You've got to, you've got to look carefully when there's a circumstance like that at, at an outside perspective. Uh, you know, when, uh, when your brain function has been compromised, it's especially important to get an outside perspective. We're trying to help out moms and dads out there that are on a budget. Uh, and I'm just throwing out some things here and you guys can poke holes in them. But there's a lot of online groups, Facebook, pick your platform that are selling used uh, equipment. And there's lots of options out there that are uh, emerging devices like the Sense AI device which is oriented to the person. Um, uh, uh, Divergence uh, Neuroscience uh, in Canada uh, ends up having an orientation towards the therapist managing uh, the case. And the therapist would design the protocol. They would use the crown um, uh, system uh, as the device that would uh, end up being used. Uh, And uh, the, the data ends up uh, being hooked through a cell phone uh, to the internet, but it's, uh, there, there's direct feedback provided. Um, as, so that, you know, there's, uh, there's lots of approaches that are orienting towards the individual. Uh, and there again, it's good to have some uh, solid professional advice before uh, doing self treatment. If you've got something severe, or significant, um, but you can also uh, end up uh, uh, with uh, a device that's oriented towards the therapist managing, uh, uh, changing thresholds, uh, r- running the session remotely, and, and that sort of a thing. And again, the um, uh, Divergence Neuro up in Canada is, uh, has a software package and everything oriented towards uh, therapists managing remote devices. Very much like I give uh, free advice to uh, uh, the iSync uh, people in Korea and Sense AI, I also have given uh, free advice to the divergence folks, and you know pretty much anybody else that's foolish enough to listen to me. So um, uh, I have to just you know declare that as well. Maybe we should have the iSync people uh, on here. Uh, well, the time of day would probably have to be altered a little bit. I mean, uh, they're, they're in Seoul, Korea. So, um, you know, uh, uh, 12, uh, 13 hours. I, I don't know. Yeah. I'll, I'll, we'll, we'll try and get a hold of them. We'd, no, the, we, we've had, we've had them sometimes attending, uh, um, uh, things that I've done, uh, in the morning here and it's like the middle of the night there. So it's, yeah, it's, it's, it's uh, not something they can do commonly, but uh, I'm sure that they would be happy to be on. Um, uh, uh, they've developed quite the nice database and uh, also a, a helmet system uh, that has the uh, dry sensors uh, and photobiomodulation. But uh, the dry sensor uh, can go through a cell phone or a tablet 
through to the cloud server with their AI. Uh, and uh, they, they come back with an answer uh, very quickly uh, within minutes um, uh, with respect to whether uh, the, the pattern matches mild cognitive impairment or dementia or normal aging. So um, I think if you're listening, I know it's uh, tomorrow, but uh, if you got a, an extra cap, you want us to try, uh, we're, we're, we're up for it. Well, there, uh, uh, I, I believe that they're in process with the FDA uh, there. They are Korean FDA and they've actually got their uh, device in active use. They just received a second year in a row uh, major awards for the, um, uh, for their developments of AI and cognitive detection and the device as well as their database. So uh, they, they were the first database to have uh, gender-specific uh, uh, norms and, and you know, everybody else com- combines male and female. And, you know, <laughs> uh, yeah, I can tell the difference, can't you? You know, <laughs> uh, and, and the, the database, is, once, once you end up with a full database of, of the, the two, you can end up seeing the differences. Uh, during the developmental trajectory, there's significant differences. And with aging, uh, there's also differences. 45 years old on up, females light up with gamma and fast activity. Males go electrically cerebral silent. You know, it's really a striking difference. And if you can combine a lot of gamma with almost none, what do you get? Something you don't want to be compared to. You know, you, you want to be compared to your own uh, uh, specific gender. So uh, anyway, they're, uh, they, they've got a wonderful... Uh, approach and uh, I've known them for decades. So you, t- you tell them I'm going to reach out to them. They better pick up pick up the phone. We this very a lot of people are asking about how to do it at home and uh, they're almost there. It sounds like we thank you all for listening to NeuroNoodles Neurofeedback and Neuropsychology podcast. We'd like to thank our Patreon supporters, Outrageous Baking, Tort Talk. Joshua M, owner of Alternative uh, Behavioral Therapy, EG and Me. Mara, welcome aboard, Mara. New one. Sadiam and Jonathan Rowan, January Terrell. Outrageous Baking is a dedicated gluten-free bakery that's been around for 15 years. And Tortoc wants more people to discover TTS, text-to-speech, because listening to text can increase efficiency and reduce stress. Hey, do you have an idea for a topic? Please email Pete at neuronoodle.com. Or leave us a voicemail with a link in the podcast notes. Please give us five stars on Apple Podcasts. Subscribe to our YouTube channel which is growing like gangbusters. Smash that like button on Facebook, Instagram, follow us on Twitter. And again, hey, if you really, really, really like us, you can buy us a coffee on Patreon slash NeuroNoodle. We love our Patreon peeps, don't we, Jay? You got it. You know, you're getting so many of them. We've got to have rolling credits at the end for our our Patreon supporters. We're going to give them as much value as we can, Jay. Cue the music.